0: Yeah, you're right. You don't know very much about me. (laughs) (laughs) For instance, you don't know that even though I'm blokey, I was once um, told by Sangha when I lived at Padmaloka in this um, community full of men that I was the most feminine man there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He told me that because he said said I was the most feminine man because he thought that... um, Women, feminine, um, were people that really cared. And I was uh, very, very good at caring for the community. And a couple of days ago, another uh, order member, Works of Breathwork, said to me that she thought I was the, well, not thought, she said to me that I was the most caring man she ever met. Aww. So that's something you probably don't know about me, but <laughs> now you do. The other thing you probably don't know about me is that I'm a, mu- um, not a musician, I'm a magician. Um, I've always been interested in the archetype or the figure of um, the magician, and uh, it's always fascinated me. Um, you know, as a child I was very interested in um theory and legend, and particularly the figure of Merlin. Although some people might think I was wanting to be the king or one of those knights of the round table. It was the figure of Merlin that really attracted me. Um, This figure that seemed to come and go and be working in the background, transforming things, making things happen. Um, And then, of course, you get the figure of Gandalf that's been made so popular in the films of Lord of the Rings. When I read the book many, many years ago... um, I, I, I really like this figure and uh, I have been thinking about growing a beard and uh, wearing a pointed hat but then think, uh, I think being a magician that doesn't look like magicians is even more magic. So, um, and then when I became interested in Buddhism I came across a figure called Padmasambhava who um, for me also represents a very much the spiritual magician. So um, I've been doing the Padmasambhava visualization for about 40 years, and um, so I think it's has its effect on me. So what I intend to do today is to put a spell on you all. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the spell is going to take place over the course of this next hour. And um, I don't know how, how powerful a magician I am, Um, I can't make rabbits appear out of hats, but I've got this feeling I can evoke the power of other magicians to put a a spell on you. I wish, in fact, I'm going to evoke the power of a man who lives just across the way there, Banty, and uh, I'm going to be talking um, quite a lot about some of the things that Banti has spoken about. Because Banti cast a spell on me 44 years ago, when I first met him in 1972. I met this man who really didn't seem very charismatic, didn't seem like a, the sort of guru type figure that you um, would attract. He did look a bit like a Gandalf figure, I have to say. He wore robes, had long hair, and had lots of rings on his fingers. And um, he was a bit weird. And uh, But there was something about him, beneath all that, that was extremely attractive for me. And <clears throat> um, early on, very early on, I think he he, um, he he cast a spell on me. Now, one of the problems of being involved in a religious movement is when you hear about the guru casting spells, you kind of think... It must be a cult, you know, that you're all all sort of stuck here because you're all being indoctrinated into some sort of cult that you won't ever be able to get out of. Well, one of the definitions of a cult is that it's um, very easy to um, get in and very hard to get out. But the tree rat in the Buddhist order is very difficult to get in and you can resign any (laughs) time. So I think um, Banti created something that was far from a cult. It was a complete opposite of a cult. And the spell that he cast on me was the spell of a longing to be free. Um, a longing to break out and become free of, um, of all the constrictions of, um, of life and, and so forth. Um, it was a spiritual... Um, Charisma that he had, it was a kind of spiritual spell that he, he, um, he cast. And I feel very, very pleased that he cast this spell on me. When he ordained me, he gave me the name Sona, and he said this, this word Sona means, um, in Indian languages, um, gold. And he explained that gold was very precious, it's um, very malleable, it's um, ductile, can be drawn out. It um, doesn't corrode. Um, so it's very pu- pure gold, and it's quite heavy. And he said, There's a, I have those... He sees those qualities in me. However, he did go on to point out that gold has to be extracted from the dross of the earth, <laughs> <laughs> usually crushed up with a lot of water, and cleaned and then melted together and... Uh, so I took that as a teaching and um, been trying to purify the gold within me ever since. But I think one of the things that um, really attracted me, and probably a lot of the um, of my friends in the Order who were particularly attracted to Banty at that time, this was back in the early 70s and, and, and um, some before that and some after that, people that actually met Banty, listened to his lectures, saw him. I actually lived with Banty for many years. Um, I lived in, in a community like the men's community over there. I lived at Padmaloka men's community when Banti lived there. I used to drive Banty around when I first come in contact. So I got to know Banty. I've sat by his bed when he couldn't sleep or when he's been ill. And uh, he's talked to me about, personal things like his mother and, and so on, when, when uh, I was younger. Uh, unfortunately, more recently, although I live quite close to him, I don't get to see him. Well, I, I see him quite often walking around, but I don't get to see him very much. But I feel very close to him. I'm very proud to be a disciple of Banti. Some people have this idea that being a disciple, is isn't, they don't like the word. But I love it because I think of myself as a magician-disciple and uh, the magician is Banti and he's the master and he's been training me to cast spells I hadn't realised this until this morning in fact so I haven't told anyone this before that I'm really a magician so this is me coming out of the closet (laughs) one of the things I loved about Banti was his unconventionality and his what I would call audaciousness last Sunday I was in a chapter meeting here at um, Adistana, and uh, it was Mahamati, a senior order member, someone I've known since the middle, late uh, 70s, Um, he talked about, he said that he'd listened to one of Bhante's very early lectures, Breaking Through to Buddhahood. Uh, Now, nowadays, how many people here have have actually listened to recorded lectures of um, Bhante? Well, that's good to know. Yeah, it's really. I thought it had died out. I thought people just read books about him. But when you listen to the man, something comes across in his voice and the way he speaks. At first, it might seem a bit, you know, I don't, who is this guy? It's not very interesting. But when you leave the lecture, you feel different. He has this way of getting under the surface. And uh, sometimes I've even fallen asleep very often, actually, when I've listened, to, I listened to most of his rec- lectures in recordings and often fell asleep. But I think it had a sort of subliminal effect on me. I wasn't asleep all through the whole lecture, just once or twice. Um, but um, that particular lecture, Breaking Free from Buddhahood, had a kind of audacious nature um, a- a- aspect to it. It was about breaking through in three particular areas. One was breaking through time, which I'm very good at. I just not very good at time, so I must have broken through that. <laughs> That's probably a rationalisation. Um, so maybe there's more work to do on it. Breaking through our conditioning. So um, we all we're all conditioned, and uh, you know my conditioning is to be a bit perhaps to be a bloke, and I might identify with that. But I need to break through that and become something new, like a magician. Then I'll have to break through that, I guess. And uh, breaking through conventions, which some people have found very hard to accept about uh, Banty, That he's very unconventional. He's done lots of things that have been seen as bad, not, ex- not socially acceptable. But when you know the man and you kind of know what, where he's coming from and what's happening, well, I have to say, he's always a bit of an enigma to me, and I wouldn't like to say I really know him. But I, I have this confidence that he comes from a very, very deep depth and he brings something into the world from very, very deep something somewhere. So I have an enormous amount of gratitude um, for Bhante. Uh, he's completely transformed my life and he's certainly helped me to break free in all sorts of ways. And I probably could give a whole series of lectures or talks on that. Anyway, I'm going to talk in a way that's going to enchant you, <laughs> probably disturb you in places and um, I'm going to use as a, a structure, a traditional Buddhist structure, which if you've done Level 2 Buddhism, which I've been assured everyone here has done, although some of the older members may not have done it. I've never done it. I <laughs> don't even know what you do in Level 2 or Level 1. Come to that. <laughs> um, but you may have come across Sila, Samadhi and Pragnar. Is that in Level 2? Um, yeah, some people are nodding. Yeah. Ethics, meditation and wisdom. Okay, so I'm going to use that as my structure. And... Um, and I'm going to now evoke something in you. You probably won't know what this fully means, but you'll feel it. Right? This actually comes from a Christian mystic a poet, a 17th century English poet, who is quite associated with this area, particularly Ledbury. Um, a barrel load of his um, um, poetry was found by a, a London bookseller, I think in 1890 or something, in Ledbury. It was just about to be cast away into the rubbish heap. And this um, bookseller discovered it and realised what it was. And it was the works of Thomas Traherne, who's perhaps not that well known to everyone. But there's one particular line in a a poem that comes from a series of um, verses collected into what's called Centuries of Meditation. And this line goes like this. You will never enjoy the world right until the sea floweth in your veins, and you are clothed by the heavens and crowned by the stars. You will never enjoy the world right until the sea floweth in your veins, and you are clothed by the heavens and crowned by the stars. Quite strong, that not it? So, abundance is all about that. It's about letting something through into your being that will completely transform you, make you into a completely new being. I'm going to call it white light, as a kind of abbreviation. It's about allowing the light of reality to come in to you and allow you to break free of all the restrictions that you may be experiencing in your life. And hopefully, even if it's a little bit uncomfortable at times, um, you'll go away infused, infused to become something more. Um... So, according to Banti, people come to our centres, you, me, we go to Buddhist centres for one of two reasons. Um, there may be other reasons, but he said, generally speaking, there's one of two reasons. Either it's a psychological reason, I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment, or a spiritual reason, and I'll explain what that means too. So psychological is that you are not really that happy with your life. You, you might feel a bit down, you might feel like you got, haven't got enough friends, or you, you know, you don't know it's wrong, and you, you just want to be a bit happy. You just want to be a bit more plugged in, communicate with people. So it's kind of on a certain level. You, you, you think, oh, I'll go to the Buddhist center. Maybe nowadays, because people talk about stress so much, you think, oh, my life's a bit stressful you know, Buddhists, they all sit around doing nothing most of the time and uh, quite friendly. That should be, you know, de-stressing. So i go along to get de-stressed. And so you get there and, yeah, you probably get de-stressed, you know, sitting there watching your breath come and go, developing loving kindness for yourself and others. And you kind of think, oh, that's, that's really nice. So that's, that's one of the reasons why you may have come along to the centre. It's probably the majority of people these days Um, come along I could do I could get you to put your hands up but don't just think about it Um, the other reason is that um, life is so confusing and meaningless and um, weird that you need to find some spiritual or some meaning to existence you know if you're Um, like me and apparently I'm a little bit odd because at the age of seven I discovered that we all live in an illusion that there could never have been a beginning so there can't be a now and there can't be a future and uh, therefore I I realized we're all fooling ourselves and i come on to this a bit later in my talk but I don't want to talk too much about that because it's terrifying because you might think oh well, I am here, anyway, you are here, right? So it's all right, just stay there. And, um, but if you've come along to the centre because of um, psychological reasons, that's good. Um, it may be that you would like to think of aiming a little bit higher than that level. There's a Zen saying in Zen Buddhism, and it's a kind of archery Um, If you want to fire an arrow and hit the top of the trees, aim for the moon. Because arrows never go straight, they fall down. So if you've come for happiness, or to feel more whole and uh, more healthy, then don't aim for that. Aim for something more. And in doing that, you will become happy and healthy and integrated and positive and so on. If you, and it will lead you over, it will tip over into the spiritual reasons, you'll have to kind of discover what life is about, so you'll you'll end up coming to the spiritual. So that's where you want to aim for, if you really want to become happy. If you aim to be happy, you'll fail, probably, you'll just miss the mark, and it will be all right, you might go away after a little while and think, yeah, well I've done Buddhism, I'm all right now, and then you know, the wheel will go round and eventually you'll find yourself back in the same spot and you'll have to go back to the Buddhist centre again because, you know, it worked for you last time. Um, If you're working as a spiritual being when you come to the Buddhist centre you're there because of higher reasons, what you often have to do, or what we have to do because that was what happened to me, is to go back and work on the psychological. So in a way, we're all working on the same things. Um, if any of you have seen that talk I gave on that little video, advertising this talk, I talked about, uh, a bit about this in my own personal experience, that I was very interested in the spirituality of Buddhism, and I meditated a lot, reflected a lot, and on one occasion on a retreat, something happened to me that kind of scared me, and I realized I couldn't go any further because I wasn't integrated enough, um, I mean, it, it didn't work out like that at the time. I was just frightened, and uh, but I worked out I wasn't integrated enough um, because I hadn't worked on certain aspects of my being that needed working on, and I, 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 I'll, I'll talk a bit, a bit more about that and go back to that in a moment. This is one. This is um, a little thing about Banty here. I'm going to invoke Banty in one of his very difficult little things. And some of you will, m- might translate this in the wrong way. So please just be open to what I'm going to say now. You know, in um, modern life, and in, particularly in the mindfulness world, there's a lot of talk about acceptance, accepting yourself as you are. Well, you might be interested to know Banty does not like this. He does not like people to talk about accepting themselves. Now you might think, "Oh, I don't like that. I, I just worked all this time, but done all these years, and I come to, you know, appreciate myself and accept that, you know, I might not be perfect, but I'm good. I'm a good person." And uh, you, he's not saying that you shouldn't do that. He's just saying, "Don't accept staying there." Okay. So, you know, if you hear this thing that Banty said, he doesn't like this, um, you know, this language, accepting yourself, one of the dangers of it is, is that you can just rationalize the rest of your life by accepting yourself. But you do need to love yourself. You do need to accept that you're perhaps a little rat and you're not very good. Things don't go well, but you've got a good starting point. You know, you can, you've come into contact with something higher. You can now transform yourself and the heavens are waiting, the stars are waiting, and the sea is ready to flow through your veins. So don't accept yourself. We're gonna have to work with this in the mindfulness world because we keep telling everyone to accept themselves. And I always find it difficult when I have to say that. I always wanna say, don't accept yourself. Be more, be more. There's so much more to you. Let it out, break free. Let the light shine. It's wonderful. There's an abundance of you there, waiting. So, I had this experience at Guhiloka in 1992, where I was sitting just watching my mind, watching my mind, and realising that there was just thoughts going on in my mind. In a way, that's what mind is. It's just a grabbing hold of things, and you think about them if you feel about them. And I was watching, and then there was a voice that said to me, I've always been here, and I always will be. I thought maybe it was Mara, the devil, um, or God. I didn't know. Um, anyway, I, um, and I, and I, I wasn't sure whether the voice was inside me or outside me. It was just like, well, where did that come from? <laughs> and uh, I thought, oh no, I'll go and get a cup of tea. <laughs> Um, but it was too much trouble going to the cafe, the, um, the, not the cafe, the dining room or where you made tea. I went to the library instead. Everyone else was sitting around in the sunshine writing poetry and doing things. It was two weeks of silence. So I found this book um, of uh, a seminar transcript called The Enchanted Heart, which is a, uh, a seminar that Bhante did on the bodhisa- Avatara. And I flick through it. And then one thing that caught my eye was a teaching on the path of regular and irregular steps. He said that most of us start nowadays on the path of irregular steps. We aim, aim to the moon, and as we're trying to take off, we realise that we don't have any wings. <laughs> So we have to go and find the wings and uh, you know, and learn how to flap them and how to run down the runway and get a bit of momentum. And then we can leap, and then we might start flying. So I thought, well, okay, if I was to follow the path of regular steps, where should I start? So I thought, ethics, that's, you know, I knew quite a bit about Buddhism by this time. Um, actually, I knew a lot about Buddhism by this time. Um, and uh, I thought, ethics, mm, well, I'm not killing anyone. You know, don't steal. You know, I'm, I'm relatively good on the third precept. And um, not perfect, but, you know, good. I'm a good person, basically. And uh, I thought, well, yeah, that's pretty good, isn't it? You know, I mean, I've always had a good self-view of myself. I, I always think I'm great. <laughs> and I kind of find it difficult when other people don't. but. <laughs> Um, but that's partly because I used to go around as a young man saying, I'm great. <laughs> you know, I'm a guru. I'm a tantric guru. And uh, I used to have a little dance and a song and uh, get really enthusiastic about it. I, maybe i turn this into a therapy. And, uh, anyway, let's not diverse, digress, I mean. So um, I thought, actually, what am I weak at? And I thought, well, I'm quite generous. I give a lot of my time. You know, I've been given up earning money and things like that. And, and um, you know, I, I was a full-time Buddhist. I thought, I don't like giving money away. I'm a bit tight. And, uh, and it's possibly to do with my conditioning. I grew up in a very poor family. And then I became a poor Buddhist. <laughs> After I had the opportunity to become quite a rich engineer, I decided to become a poor Buddhist. And then I didn't have much money. And... Um, I, I was I was always I got into the habit of just being a little bit tight tight in the sense of holding things holding on to things. So I thought this is what I need to work on, and uh, it's been a journey I have to t- say. To um, um, I met Vidya Mala, uh, who's my partner now, and she, she well, actually she's more like a Mitra, actually because she often does things like um, she gets you know you get these things through the post, don't you? Like from the Buddhist Centre saying. Could you up your donation, or could you? So she says, "Have you done anything about it yet?" I go, "What?" She <laughs> said, "Well, they, you know, they asked for some money. Did you, if you, have you, um, you know, increased your standing order?" I say, "No." She said, "Well, when are you going to do it?" I go, um, "Soon." <laughs> and um, she's been very good for me like that. And I think she's going to talk about Dana. She's so um, generous. She's she makes you feel kind of small and mean <laughs> just being near her sometimes. <laughs> So, um, But what I have found is that um, I've come to agree with Vidya Mahler that if you give out to the world, the world comes back and supports you somehow. Now, if you do that as a kind of um, contract, I'm only going to give so that the world gives something back and nothing happens, it kind of is going to fail. But if you just give and give and give... Then, for some reason, it's obvious in a way, people think you're generous, they like you, you're kind, you you feel happy because you're generous. Because when you're tight, you're you're like this, aren't you? You know, like Scrooge, you know, and you pull a funny face. And and when you give, you smile, usually. And uh, you smile at first, then you go, oh. (laughs) And you go, oh, well, it's too late. now keep smiling. (laughs) And, um, and and the, in a way, the more you give, the happier you, you feel. And when you hear this from someone, you think, oh, he's probably going to suggest that I, I give all my money to the Buddhist centre. But I want you to really reflect on this, because this is an important part of the Buddha's teaching, that if you're tight, you will be tight. And if you're tight, you won't let in the light. So, oh, there's a little poem there. <laughs> so you need to make some cracks where the light comes in and that's where you do with your wallet (laughs) (laughs) ethics is another way of loosening up this tightness of being Um, so much of what we do is for us, for me Um, we're born according to Immanuel Kant uh, with the original disposition of mind I think he calls it I was listening to a lecture by Sabuti recently when he describes this. And um, we're born by um, splitting me and other into two parts. This is how our minds start functioning. And so the me part becomes in, in um, kind of a distance from other. But we don't, we don't have a kind of collective consciousness. And uh, I'd like to speak a bit more about this towards the end of the talk. So ethics um, is a way of... Um, uh, of, of becoming more malleable, becoming more ductile, more soft, uh, more open. It's as though the molecular structure of your being, instead of being tight and pulled together, becomes open. And in that opening, the energy spreads and the light permeates through to your being. It's a nice image of that, isn't it? Just think of yourself as a cosmos full of stars. And uh, apparently there is as many molecules in your being as there are in the galaxy. So billions of molecules and billions of stars. And they're all moving slightly apart. And the light shining through. It's being emitted even from these molecules, permeating your being. So this is what ethics can do for you. Caring for others, being scrupulously honest and um, working on all the precepts. You know, all of, none, none of, They're only precepts, and we have to go on working on them till we become Buddhas. But it's just there as a training to make us more open, more receptive. The great thinker and teacher, um, Dr. Ambedkar, as he's known in India, he said something interesting about morality, which... Uh, I was in India in, gen- in uh, January... I had to give a talk there. So I was reading up about Dr. Ambedkar's teachings. And something just jumped out the page at me. He said, um, I hope I got this right. He said that morality for Buddhists is what God is for Hindus. Morality is for Buddhists what God is for Hindus. It's something that we should be kind of... um, It it may be, it doesn't really work in our uh, culture. But in the Indian culture where people have very, very strong feelings of um, reverence to the gods and to Brahma and so on. The, the Buddhist, as Buddhists, we should be having this kind of reverence and um, feeling for morality or ethics. Morality doesn't seem to be a very positive word in the West. We like to to use the word ethics, but it means the same thing, of being a moral, upright, you know, kind, healthy human being. So ethics is very good. It's a very, it's the starting point. You can't really go forward without ethics. If you, you, you start off by meditating, you know, you, you get on your cushion and maybe you're a good meditator. You just sit there, your mind quietens down. Most people's don't, but most people, you know, your mind quietens down and you, you kind of have a bit of, kind of, Pretty, you know, you feel bliss bubbling up, not calm. And then you start seeing things as they really are. And you go, don't want that. <laughs> and it, because it's a real threat to your ego sense, your sense of self is so tight and uh, fixed that it needs to be kind of loosened up and open. So, ethics is a really good way um, of helping you to become more integrated. And this will give you a robustness, a a greater sense of you. Because if you're a tight little being, you won't really ever like yourself. You'll know that you're a tight little being. If you're a big, generous being, you will think, I'm great. You won't think that, because most people are too shy to think that. But you ought to think that. I'm great. I'm a great being. I'm giving away a lot. I'm a bodhisattva. You know, even if you're not, act like one. It will have its effect. So this is the benefit of ethics. You'll have to go back to ethics anyway if you start with meditation. Carry on, keep meditating, keep practicing insight. One day you'll think, oh, you're not getting anywhere, and you'll get back to it. Or you'll break through self, and then you'll be an ethical being making an effort in that area because you're not perfect anyway. So it's all going to go back to ethics. So you might as well start at the beginning, or at least include it more in your life. And it starts with generosity. This is where the abundance comes in. Okay, meditation. Well, in a way, this is about letting the light shine through. It's allowing yourself to let go of all the thoughts and um, ideas and views and opinions and just sit with yourself, comfortable with yourself, in a state of being. I'm not going to say too much about um, meditation, except meditation is a way of avoiding being distracted by distraction from distraction another saying not of bounties but he quoted it in one of his lectures um, from someone else and um, you know we're usually beings that are distracted from distraction by distraction so it's like we don't actually want to really experience things so we keep distracting ourselves and we find more and more distractions when you meditate, you're practising not being distracted, aren't you? You're just kind of, first of all, learning to focus on the breath, or having um, a positive sense of, of self and in self in relationship to others in the metabhavana. So it's difficult to break free if you're always distracting yourself. Maybe that's all I need to say on meditation at the moment. I've got big notes. When you're a magician, you have to have big notes. You have to know where you are going. So, one of the problems that we deal with, which actually comes up very clearly in uh, when we're meditating is that we begin to realise we're living in a very sensual world, that we we experience the world through our senses. That's why it's difficult to sit still and do nothing. There was a story about a king who asked the Buddha, I couldn't find the source of this when I was looking recently, but I came across it when I was young. A king says to the Buddha, What have you got? What have you got? He said, I've got all these palaces, all these elephants, all these things, all these riches, all this power. What have you got? And the Buddha says, well, I can sit still. And the king said, well, I can do that too. He said, well, can you sit still for a day, a whole day? And the king said, well, probably. And he said, well, could you sit still for two days or three days? And the king said, "Well, well, you know, if I had to. I might do, and uh, the Buddha said, "Could you sit still for a whole week?" And the king says, mm, "All right, I can't sit still for a whole week." And the Buddha says, "Well, I tell you, I could sit still for several weeks without moving once." And um, I was thinking of this um, story, and I was thinking, "What does the Buddha do when he's sitting still for a week?" You know, it, that's what struck me because mind, my mind sort of goes into like, "Why did? What happens? if you could sit still for a week, not moving." What would your mind be doing? You you, you wouldn't be asleep, because... What's the point of that? So, I kind of imagine you're sitting there with white light. You're kind of illuminated from within. And everything looks different. And it's so fascinating, and so interesting, there's no reason to move. And uh, when we meditate... We sit still, and if we sit still for an hour without moving, we think we're getting good, don't we? But what happens after an hour? There's something in you, even if your body doesn't hurt, there's something in you that goes, time to stop. Is that, is that true? Is that your, that's my experience. You know, and if you go on retreats, that, that time gets extended. But after a while, there's a thing that says, time to stop. Got to do something else. And that's p- partly because we're so trapped in this world of the senses, that the senses have been stilled and we've not been using them but suddenly we have to start using them again it's very very difficult to break out of the world of the senses in fact the only thing we can really do is to c- refine our sensual desires it's a waste of time trying to break out of the world of the senses you can sit for hours and hours but sooner or later there'll be oh, time to stop I've got to do something else and then you'll look for some sort of distraction probably I'm not getting distracted, I'm just getting thirsty. I'm getting a little bit anxious because I've got a lot more to say and I'm running out of time. So i just have to talk fast. <laughs> or I'll leave some out. Okay, so this is an interesting point now. This is one of Bhante's um, big teachings, is that we need to learn how to refine our senses. We need to find sensual enjoyment... Of a higher nature than the one we usually do. Most of us nowadays, we live in the the most successful ideology the world has ever seen. We're all we're all um, part of this new ideology. It's so seductive; it's almost impossible to free yourself of it. It's called consumerism. The creed of consumerism is, if you buy things, it doesn't matter whether you need them or not, just buy them, you'll be happy. That's the creed. Buddhism says you should stop doing certain things and you should be happy, you should do other things and you'll be happy. That's much more difficult to follow, isn't it? I mean, consumerism is so seductive. Just spend your money and you'll be happy. We're all bought into it. We're all part of it. Of course, some of us are capitalists whose creed is don't spend your money, reinvest it and get more money and then invest that and get more money and then take advantage of all the consumers around you who are going to be giving you their money to get your money, to make your money more and you become richer and they become poorer but make sure they've got enough because they've got to keep spending. And so this is what we're all stuck with. So let's be consumers of higher things, the things that don't cost money. Sorry, capitalists amongst you. <laughs> um, you're going to lose out eventually anyway. But um, you can learn to have experiences of a higher nature. This is more to do with, like, the arts, you know, m- being more refined in your aesthetic appreciation of things, whether it's visual, audio, um, tasting, and so on. So this is a very in, uh, in, important thing that I picked up from Banti: is don't worry about not being, don't worry about not being sensual, work, living with your senses. Allow them to become more refined. Learn how to become a more refined being and enjoy life. I, I've never really been a um, kind of renunciate type of like giving up things. I'd give up things for up better things don't have a problem with that so I, I'm quite happy to give up things and have better things so I think this is, is an interesting way of, for us to look in fact I think we ought to be looking um, to becoming like an artist I was listening to this programme of um, it was, a, it was a, a fictional film I was watching but there was a line in it where someone was asked what um, what music meant to them and he was a conductor in this story and the, um, the author wrote that um, as a conductor he wakes up with music he eats breakfast with music he has music in his mind all day long and he goes to bed with music imagine if you woke up with spirituality with the Dharma you had breakfast with the Dharma you were thinking about Dharma all day, there wouldn't be time to consume very much And um, your life would be very, very different. Imagine if you could live your life to that sort of degree. It would be effortless. It's not like you have to do it. It would just, like, grow into it and be that, be a a natural, you know, artist. Um, And and Banty calls, uh, it makes a a correlation between the spiritual um, practitioner and the artist, he says that we should all become artists on the way to becoming bodhisattvas and so on. So this is something we could um, uh, try to achieve. Look at what we're doing in our life that's keeping us down, kind of like lead on, on, on the conditioned. What is it that can make us lighter and more free um, in the world? Last thing is wisdom. Um, I just want to say a little bit about this, that um, when you start seeing how things really are, things start moving apart. And usually you get a reaction to this, you quickly want to pull them all back together. But it's sometimes like taking three steps forward and two steps back, but you do make it an advance of one step. And you may, many of you will find a spiritual life goes like this. You'll, you'll think you're doing really well, I and mean, then something will happen, you think, oh, I'm d- not doing really well. But you'll look back and you think, actually, I'm doing really well. So you'll keep moving forward and coming back. One of the problems we have is, and this is another teaching of Bhante, which isn't often used, talked about, is that we need to transition from different levels of consciousness. We've all got our feet, our roots, in the consciousness of the group. So the group is something that is really important to us. It's actually all imagined. We we imagine the group. We imagine the family. We imagine um, the nation. We imagine that we're in Europe, that we could get out of Europe. It's all imagination. There's no such thing as Europe. There's trees across the sea on the other side of what we call the channel, which is imagined, and which are, are real. But France isn't real. It's just an idea that we've all agreed on. And most of the reality we live in is what's called consensual reality. A company, Breathworks, doesn't exist. The Manchester Buddhist Centre doesn't exist. There are bricks and girders and things that are put in place that we call the Manchester Buddhist Centre, but we will imbue it with an idea of what it is, and we share that view amongst ourselves. We have what's called a group consciousness about these things. And this group consciousness is limiting. When we don't like something, we're trying to fight and struggle free of it, like Europe, some people are. And uh, others want to stay in Europe, Not that there is a Europe to stay in. Of course, you have to make decisions with the group, and you need to vote in the referendum. Very important to vote to stay in or leave. (laughs) I'm not allowed to give you my political views in the public, but you should do what you feel is best. But as a good citizen, as a good Buddhist, it's good to at least take responsibility and to use your vote. Um... But it's good to recognise we do have this collective consciousness that is always, and the group is always trying to pull us down, to keep us in it, um, whatever little group you're, you're involved in. And you can't get free of groups, so you have to make the most of it. You have to use your awareness that you're in a group and and, being, and trying to break free. Banty then talks about the next level of consciousness, which is individual consciousness, which I guess that's what you've all got here you've broken free from the group you're not you know you're not going on holiday this weekend with your other group people you're you're here with this group you have to be careful not to make this in too much of a group but you're an individual of course sometimes you become so much of an individual you react against the group which then according to bounty makes you a group of one <laughs> um, because you can only exist in relation to the group of the other you can't exist on your own. You identify yourself as a person that doesn't like groups. That's your identity. And that's as limiting as being part of the group. So uh, um, the level of, in, uh, of being an individual, of just doing what you feel is right and going against the group when you need to because of your values and your, the things that you care about is extremely liberating. But that's not the highest level. The highest level is what he calls collective consciousness, or the third order of consciousness. It's where, once again, we feel connected. We feel connected with each other as individuals. And when this happens, something magical emerges. And that is when the sea flows through your veins, and you feel clothed by the heavens and crowned by the stars. So this is really how you get abundance. You go from being in this group, which feels safe at first, supportive, but then it becomes claustrophobic and limiting. You need to bring, break free of that. And then you. we live in a time of me, and so there's a kind of group called me, and we sometimes don't know what an individual is anymore, because we confuse it with being just all about me but being an individual is more than being about me it's about being something bigger than that and as you become more and more of an individual and you meet other individuals and you form a sangha of individuals, a collection of individuals, something else emerges and Banty's description of this, he, he uses the, um, the metaphor of, or the actual experience really, of the orchestra you may have come across this teaching, of um, when you're playing in an orchestra, if you've ever done that, or sung in a choir, you know that you're very focused on your own particular part, your own instrument, you're an expert, you're an artist, you've reached that high level of um, ability, and at the same time you're, ex- you're completely tuned in to what's going on around you. And there's a conductor in the front conducting you, in this piece of music. And when it all comes together, something really magical happens. There's something there that's more than the sum of the parts. And this is what we're trying to achieve with Sangha. This is what we're trying to do this weekend, to have an experience of something that we can't really put our finger on or be completely sure of what it is. is—is some sort of nebulous thing which we can experience, but we're not sure if we're even experiencing it. But it comes when we communicate with each other on a, about a higher a higher level. If you're just communicating about yourself, always talking about yourself and your problem, you'll tend to, to go a bit low. If you talk about yourself and how you can become more, you'll be already rising up to this new level of collective consciousness. So there can be an abundance of this collective consciousness where you never feel alone. You're, co- you're perfectly capable of being alone. You don't need anyone, but you can just enjoy this collective consciousness that you can experience. It all comes from letting in the light. So if you've got nothing else you can think of to discuss in the groups that we're going to have soon, ask yourself the question, what for you is blocking the light? Thank you very much.